Well, good morning. Happy week after the 4th of July as our ushers come to take the offering. Uh, I just get the pleasure of telling you that, you know, our fiscal year ends at the end of June. And uh, again, this year, you guys gave above and beyond the budget for the year. So we are just really incredibly thankful. I just want to say thank you for that. And that enables us, you know, that kind of surplus enables us to be nimble when opportunities, God brings opportunities that we can say yes to them. So we get excited about that. And not only that, but it gets us the opportunity to shore up some things that we've been in need of. So just thank you for your generosity. And I also want to say perhaps even more than that, not even perhaps, but definitely more than that as your pastor, what really excites me about the kind of generosity that you all display is not what we're able to do as a church because of it. Yes, that excites me, but even more so, really see that you are trusting God with what he's entrusted to you. And entrusting him with what he's entrusted to you, what I know is that that act is equipping you to to have your faith emboldened as different circumstances come into your life. As you're navigating your finances and being generous in that area, what that does is it sets you up so well to be filled with faith no matter what circumstances God brings into your life and to handle those with faithfulness. So that gets me pumped for you guys. Let me pray for us now and then we're gonna dive into God's word. So we thank you for this Sunday that we gather in your name and your word challenges us today. So we pray by the power of your spirit that you enable us to hear that challenge, to receive it, If there's any spiritual apathy in us today, shake us loose from that. Help us now. We pray that you would let your word have its way with us. Would you make me faithful to that word? I'm going to speak what is helpful, what is true. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would teach and instruct us today. We receive the challenge of your word to love our enemies now. We pray that you show us how. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been in the last couple weeks in a series in the book of Proverbs, and our goal in the summer is always to enable you to, I know you're hopping out on vacation and then kind of coming back, and so you're in and out sometimes, so we hope that each week kind of stands alone well enough that you're able to pick right up to speed if you're jumping in for the first time in a few weeks, but I will give you a little summary. As we've looked at the book of Proverbs, what we're doing is we're taking major themes that exist in the book, uh, things that it talks about again and again, and trying to ask, well, what does the entire book of Proverbs, this book of wisdom, that's trying to teach us how to live wisely and telling us, man, wisdom is what you want. You want to be wise. You don't want to be foolish. So what does the book teach us about these things? So we talked about the fear of the Lord. If you were here this Sunday, we talked about what does that mean? And then we talked last week about friendship. Am I the kind of friend that helps those whom I'm a friend to become wise? Friendship is this catalytic tool towards friendship. This week, we turn to the opposite side of the equation. And I think it's an appropriate challenge in this season of our cultural life together, not just as a church, but as a nation and probably as a world, that we turn now to talk about enemies. And the question in front of us is, how does a wise person treat their enemies? What does that look like? Yesterday, the Thompson clan, we were out on the, uh, the uh, rail trail, uh, the Heritage Rail Trail, I think, in York. Anybody been out there on the bikes? Beautiful. Highly recommend it. And so we were out on the rail trail. We were riding bikes, and we went, you know, a couple miles out, coming a couple miles back. And because my kids are my kids, at least two of the three are exceptionally competitive. And so, you know, I've got Deacon. I'm towing Deacon, and, you know, he's kind of doing the mush husky thing the whole time. Just, Dad, get it going. Let's go. Let's move it along, right? So he's in the back, in the trailer, and Emerson, my middle, is in front of us, and we have hit the last couple hundred yards of the trail, and my son really wants to finish 
first. And so he's like, dad, let's go. And Emerson really wants to finish first. So we've got a little race happening. And so Emerson's a little bit in front of us and he's like, dad, pastor, pastor. And I think I'm being a cute and good dad. I say, buddy, I don't know if we can pass her. She's too fast. And she gets this, I can see the smile on her face and she bears down and pedals harder. I'm like, all right. And so then right out of say, I don't know, buddy. I don't know if we can pass her. I have no idea where this came from. My son goes, then cheat. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> where did that come from? So we stopped and we had a whole lecture. You know, if you can't win fair, you don't want to win. You know. He's like, dad, cheat, cheat. He's been watching Blaze and the Monster Machines. If you got young kids, that's a show. It's a good show. Math, science, physics, the whole deal. But there's a, there's a character on the show who tries to cheat every time. And my son has apparently not learned the lesson that that character never wins. He just thought, dad, cheat. So my son is going to make a lot of enemies. It's coming his way, right? And so, you know, Enemies are a reality in life and the scriptures have a lot to teach us about them, about how we should treat them, how we should think about enemies. And so we're gonna try and answer the question today of how does a wise person, according to the book of Proverbs, how does a wise person treat their enemies? Now, if you're, if you're new to the Bible, it might help you to understand that the entire Bible has a trajectory, and that trajectory is that it points to Jesus. And so when we're in the Old Testament, like in the book of Proverbs, we're in the Old Testament, everything that we read there is in some way, shape, or form, it's pointing us to the, the pinnacle of the story, the climax of the story, which is Jesus himself and his death and his resurrection. And so Proverbs is going to do that today and then it's going to give us a lot of wisdom and the summation of that wisdom that we're going to see in Proverbs is going to be found in the teaching of Jesus when it comes to enemies. That it's essentially kind of building up to what Jesus is going to teach us about enemies. So I want to start there in Matthew chapter 5 verse 43 and look at that for just a moment and then as we go forward what we'll find is um, even a greater summation. But let's Let's tackle this question of how does a wise person treat their enemies? Let's break that into a few smaller questions that will help us. And the first is, who is my enemy? Do you recognize that in order to treat your enemies the way the Bible teaches you to treat them, you have to understand who your enemy is, yes? So let's talk about who is my enemy, then let's talk about how we treat them, and then let's talk about after that, let's talk about why we treat them that way. What's our motivation to do that? And then finally, we'll kind of encapsulate the whole thing with, Where do we find the power to do that? How do we actually live out the command that God has given us in relation to our enemies? So in one sense, this first question now, this first question, who's who's my enemy? I mean, in one sense, let me say that it doesn't actually matter that much to answer this question. In another sense, it matters very much. And let me tell you what I mean by that. When I say it doesn't matter all that much, in Matthew chapter five, verse 43, we find Jesus saying, You've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Now, he's quoting Leviticus 19 when he says, love your neighbor. That was an Old Testament command. There is no command to hate your enemy. It had just become the kind of parable of the day. It had become a normal saying, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus says, but I say to you, what? Love your enemies, So there's the summation of the teaching of Scripture when it comes to our enemies. We are to love our enemies. 
And he says, and pray for those who persecute you. Now, in another place, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is teaching about neighbors. And he has this, this person who approaches him and he says, hey, he says, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And the parable of the Good Samaritan is meant to teach one lesson. And that lesson is this. Everyone is your neighbor, including your enemy, right? And so if Jesus says, love your neighbor, and your enemy is also your neighbor, but here in Matthew chapter five, he's kind of using neighbor differently. He's using neighbor as the person who you would automatically befriend, your fellow countryman, the person who thinks like you. Love that person. And then he says, but hate your enemy. And he says, no, but I tell you, love your enemy. In one sense, if he says, love our neighbor and love our enemy, then there's a consistent theme there. That consistent theme is what, church? Love. So in some sense, can you see that it's like, whether they're my enemy, whether they're my neighbor, my call is to do what? To love them. So in some sense, it doesn't matter that much whether they're my neighbor, my enemy, my job, is to love them. But in another sense, it's really important to be able to identify what an enemy is according to the scriptures so that we can do the job that we're supposed to do well. And that job is to love our enemies. Now, we often think about enemies a little differently than how the Bible talks about them. Let me just give you a very simple definition of who is my enemy. My enemy is someone who is actively seeking to harm me. That's the biblical definition of an enemy. Every time you see in Proverbs or when you see it in the New or Old Testament, when, you, when they're talking about an enemy, they're not talking about someone who just has a different worldview than you or is from a different place than you or is a competitor to you, right? Uh, they're talking about someone who's actively seeking to harm you. And more times than not, they're, they're perpetrating evil in order to do that. They're perpetrating evil in order to harm you. And that's what makes an enemy, someone who perpetrates evil in order to harm you. So let's just think for a minute then, who is not my enemy according to that? And this is the important part I, I probably want you to really wrestle with today. Who is not my enemy? People of different religious beliefs are not my enemy. People of different political convictions are not my enemy. People from different national or racial backgrounds, not my enemy. My competitor for advancement in my career, not my enemy. The person whose personality just grates on me, not my enemy. These people may be enemies, but they're not enemies based upon any of those categories. Does that make sense? An enemy is someone who actively seeks our harm and they perpetrate evil in order to do it. In other words, unrighteousness, things that are immoral. They move against us in a way that is displeasing to God. Now, why make this distinction? Like, Why take the time before getting to how to treat our enemies? Why take the time to actually say, well, who's my enemy and who's not my enemy? And because... If we don't make this distinction, and I would argue we're living in an age where we are prone to call neighbors enemies. We are prone to imagine that people are our enemies who do not fit this definition of enemy. And the problem is when we do that, when we do that, it makes it harder to love a real enemy. It makes it much harder to love someone who's a real enemy. Because here's what happens. If I'm categorizing someone as my enemy and I'm seeking to love them, but really, they're not truly an enemy. They're not actively seeking to persecute me or harm me. They're not perpetrating evil. They're just perhaps a competitor or someone I don't like or someone with a different worldview. And when I categorize that person as an enemy, what I do is I give myself basically a bunch of kudos for loving them well. But then when someone comes and actually commits evil against me, am I going to be able to love them? Probably not. 
Because what I've done is I've lowered the bar. Rather than understanding, when it says love your enemies, it means love the person who is radically against you. Love the person who is actively harming you. And that, look, friends, when I say love your enemies, I know what you all hear is a really nice theory, a quaint idea. But you need to understand that when Jesus says love your enemies, he is, he is giving us a radical, not theory or idea, a radical command by which all followers of his must live. If you are to be a follower of Christ, you must love your enemies. It's not optional. It's not a nice idea. It's not quaint. It's really hard. When we miscategorize, when we miscategorize, what we do is we make it even harder to actually love a true enemy. To live this command, we have to start seeing enemies as neighbors and stop seeing neighbors as enemies. We've got to be able to have our categories clear. All right, so if that's what an enemy is, then let's move forward then to that question, that second question. How should I treat my enemies? And I said that the summation of the biblical teaching on this is found in Matthew chapter five where Jesus teaches us, love your enemies. You know, you've heard it said, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And what Proverbs does is it gives us, uh, what I would say, like it gives us some meat on the bone, right? Here's the deal. When I say love your enemies, this happened after first service. There, this is so complex and it's so nuanced and there's so many different circumstances that any number of you could be in right now as it pertains to enemies that the Bible assumes that we're gonna be really wise people filled with the spirit of God who can deal with a variety of circumstances. Afterwards, I had at least three or four people come up to me and go, what about this situation? And it was, there's no way that I'm gonna be able to address every situation from up here. Can we agree with that? But here's what Proverbs is gonna do. It's gonna try and say, if the general overarching command is love your enemies, Proverbs is gonna put some meat on the bone to that. And it's gonna try and fill us with some very, again, I love Proverbs because it's so practical. It just wants to say, here's what that really looks like in the day-to-day grind of life. Here's what that really looks like. And we're gonna look at three Proverbs that teach us about how we actually love our enemies, what we don't do and what we do. So let's look at it together. The first one is Proverbs 24, verse 17. So we'll have it on the screen. You can turn with me there as well. Proverbs 24, 17 says this. It says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Don't rejoice when your enemy falls and don't let your heart be glad when he stumbles. So the first thing that Proverbs is gonna tell us about how to love our enemy is loving our enemies that we, loving our enemy means that we don't rejoice when they get hurt. We don't rejoice in their harm. Now again, this takes a lot of nuance. So when we say we don't rejoice in their harm, what we're saying is we take no delight, we don't take gladness, we don't find joy in the fact that another human being made in the image of God is suffering harm. But let's think about this for a minute because this seems like counterintuitive. If someone is my enemy and actively seeking to harm me and their harm probably means they're not gonna be able to do that anymore, doesn't that seem like something we should delight in? It seems really hard not to delight in it, right? So let me, let me ask this. Here's the kind of nuanced perspective that the Spirit of God is is working or means to work within us. Should I be glad and rejoice that I'm no longer being harmed? 
Yeah, the answer is yes. Some of you are like, I don't know now that you're saying this. The answer is yes. You should be glad when you're not being harmed. Should I rejoice and be glad that the evil that's been being brought into the world by this enemy, should I be glad that that evil has ceased to exist? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you can be confident, right? Anytime evil is eliminated from the world, God is glad. This is a good thing, right? But what we don't do, where we stop short, is we, come, we stop short of delighting that another being made in the image of God is suffering harm. It is right and good to delight that we are no longer being harmed. It's right and good to delight in the fact that evil is no longer being perpetrated perpetually. That's a good thing. But we don't delight, we don't rejoice that this other human being, even our enemy, is suffering harm. Remember what Jesus said back in the Matthew 5 passage, and it was part of, a, it was, we're gonna get to all our whys at the end. It's very hard for me to backload all the whys because every time I give a what, like do this, do this, I so wanna run to the why really fast, but I'm resisting the urge today, okay, guys? Resisting the urge, but, but now that I've said that, I'm not gonna resist the urge because in, in Matthew chapter 5, we're gonna look at the Proverbs whys, but Matthew chapter 5, what did he say? Love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you so that you will be sons, and we can say daughters too, of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, you are identified as a child of God when you choose to live this way. When you choose to love your enemies, you are identified, you are seen for what you are, which is you are a child of the king. Why can we say that? Because the, the logic here is that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It's that kind of logic, right? like father, like son, like father, like daughter. And so when we hear in Matthew 5, love your enemies because it will identify you as being like God. Now think back to Ezekiel chapter 33. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, listen to what God says. He says, say to them, he's, he's talking to Ezekiel, giving him a word of prophecy. He says, Ezekiel, say to the people, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Does he say they're not wicked? No. He actually says they are wicked. Does he say he will not bring judgment and punishment upon them and possibly even death as a result of their wickedness? No, he doesn't say that either. He says, I have no delight in the death of the wicked. I'd rather they turn and live. The assumption is if they don't turn, they won't live. But I'd rather they turn and then live. That's my heart, which is why Jesus can say in Matthew chapter five, you'll be sons, you'll be daughters of your father who's in heaven if you love your enemy this way. In the same way that God says, I don't delight in the death of my enemy. I don't delight in the death of the wicked. I would rather they turn and live. Are you with me, church? You hear it? All right, good. Let's go to the second thing. Now, these build upon one another. So recognize that first one, that first one may feel hard, like don't let my emotional state be such that I get pleasure out of the suffering of my enemy. That's the first bar. You might think, okay, I, maybe, I, maybe I could do that. Maybe I won't be happy about that. I'll learn to be nuanced in what I'm happy about and what I'm not happy about. The second bar now, it kind of raises a little bit. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22, so go a little bit back to the left. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22, it says this. It says, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. 
Do not say, I will repay evil. So the second way that we love our enemy, the first way is don't take pleasure in their suffering, in their harm. The second now is don't seek revenge. Don't seek revenge. Now we find this in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through about 20. What we find is that Paul, writing there, he just borrows from Proverbs and he uses this proverb and the next one that we're gonna look at and he combines them to make a very similar argument when he says, don't seek out revenge against your enemy. And he's gonna tell us some reasons. We'll get to those in just a moment. But the thing that I want you to see is the second way we love our enemy is that we don't seek revenge against them. We don't return evil for evil done to us. So what that means is not only not seeking out opportunities to harm the one who harms me, to do evil against the one who does evil against me, it means even if those opportunities should just fall into our lap, we don't say, ah, this is from the Lord, and I will do it. To return evil for evil is never from the Lord. It never serves his purposes. You never honor and advance the purposes of God in the world by perpetrating evil against the one who harms you, by harming the one who harms you. That's the second thing that we see about how we love our enemies. And it's challenging, right? Because sometimes, sometimes it just seems like it's a, such a juicy opportunity. It's right there. And, it's, and it feels like by not taking advantage of the moment, we're gonna allow them to keep going forward in all this wickedness and continuing to harm us. And it just feels so hard to say, I'll choose to not take this moment. I'll choose to not take the Think about the self-control. If you've been in this moment, it takes a lot of self-control, doesn't it? A lot of self-control, a lot of dependence upon the Lord to do that. Now, again, let's think about the complexity of this command of loving our enemies. Because in this way, and, and perhaps only in this way, we may find that dealing with lesser evils, smaller evils, is harder than dealing with greater evils. Let me tell you what I mean. Most of the time we would identify a great evil done against us is much harder to deal with. But in this one particular category of not taking revenge, think about it this way. If someone murders a loved one of mine, I'm probably prone to say, no, I'm not gonna murder in return. I'll let the justice system bring about justice. You know, the court system will... You know, we'll let them navigate that. And in some sense, a great evil, we see that we could never do that great evil in return. But when a lesser, smaller evil is done, how easy is it to say, well, I can do that back. That lie that's told against you, you know what? I'm gonna lie right back. That slander against you, I'll just slander right back. Sometimes it's harder with those smaller ones those smaller evils done against us, to actually remember, no, no, I am not to return evil for evil. I'm not to take revenge regardless of the circumstance. And I think it's harder for us to remember not to do that when it seems justifiable to do it in the small ways. You with me? But friends, here's the message. Whether it's a great evil or a small evil, you are never to return evil for evil, harm for harm. The third, the third answer to the question, well, how do I love my enemies? What does that look like? Is going to be found in Proverbs chapter 25. So now, forgive me for the bouncing around a little bit, but go a couple pages back to the right again. And in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21 and 22, we find the bar getting raised one more time now. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink for you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. 
Now, the second half of that verse gives us the why, but let's just for a moment focus on the first half of the verse. If your enemy is hungry, do what, church? Feed him. Thirsty? Give him something to drink. In other words, the standard for loving my enemy is not just that I don't delight in their suffering and harm. It's not just that I don't seek revenge. I mean, up to this point, right, we might have been like, hey, I can do that. I, I, can, I can withhold. I can, I can not take revenge. I think I can do that. Right? The don'ts all seem like, okay, I can abstain. And now what do we come to? Oh, by the way, I don't just want you to not harm them and not take revenge. What I want you to do is bless them. That's the third thing we find. To love your enemies, you have to seek opportunities to bless them. Wow. Do you get how hard this is? Again, don't lower the bar of enemy. We're not talking about a neighbor who you just disagree with. We're talking about someone who's actively trying to harm you. And God says, your job is to, if they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them some drink. Look for opportunities to bless them. Jesus in Matthew 5 said, pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Do you remember that? That's the most practical way that you can love any enemy you've ever had. Pray for them and ask God, God, would you get a hold of their heart and their life? Would you take control of them? Would you guide and direct them so that they might be blessed in you? That you go on your knees before the Father and his throne and you say, I'm praying for the one persecuting me. I'm praying that you'd guide them out of evil and into good. Right, and this is, I mean, again, this is so nuanced. It's so challenging to think through what it looks like to love our enemy. But here we find that the last way is to look for ways to bless them. All right, so we've looked at some content of this idea, this overarching truth, love your enemies. And here's three pieces of content that Proverbs gives us. But now let's ask ourselves the question, why? What's the motivation? Because it's one thing to get a list of things that we can do or not do that fill, fulfill the command to love our enemy. But it's a whole other thing to say, well, Why? Why is that given to us? And, and we've got three whys that the scriptures give to us today. Three whys. The first one is this. I don't seek revenge. That second thing, don't seek revenge. I don't seek revenge because I want the world to see that God can be trusted. I don't seek revenge because I want the world to see that God can be trusted. What I want you to notice about this is the motivation has everything to do with your relationship with God and very little to do with your enemy himself or herself. That I don't base my not taking revenge upon the goodness of my enemy. If I do that, I'll never, I'll never obey the command. But if I see that choosing to not take revenge, to not return harm for harm, evil for evil, if I see that as a way that I'm communicating that I trust God with the circumstances of my life, He's in charge. He knows me. He loves me. He's for me, not against me. He's working all things for my good because I love him. When I understand that, all of a sudden I recognize that the way I choose to take revenge or not take revenge on someone who's harming me is an is a opportunity to express that I trust God, even in the midst of being under the thumb of this person. Look at what Proverbs chapter 20 says. This is the why that it gives us. Verse 22, it says, do not say I will repay evil. So that's what we saw before. And then what does it say? Wait for the Lord and he will what, church? He will deliver you. In other words, if I choose to take revenge, what am I not doing? I'm not waiting for the Lord and his deliverance. 
But if I choose, if I choose to not repay evil, if I choose to not take revenge, then I am saying that I trust God to deliver me from this circumstance and situation. And my chief ambition is for the world to know that God can be trusted. And when I see that, I choose to love my enemies. That's one big motivation he gives us. Recognize that when you love your enemies, you will communicate to a watching world that you serve a God who can be trusted, regardless of how difficult things are. The second why, oh, sorry, I I wanted to point out there too. Uh, Romans 12 picks up on this text, right? I told you that. And here's how he says it there in Romans 12, 19. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So here's the thing, when it comes to trusting God, you're trusting him for two things. One, you're trusting him, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22, to deliver you. I will deliver you, the text says. But now come into Romans 12, 19, where it's borrowing this text and bringing it forward into the New Testament. And what does he say? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. In other words, we are trusting God not just to deliver us, but also to deal with evil. To deal with evil. As a church, as a follower of Jesus, never believe that any evil will go undealt with. All evil will ultimately and always be dealt with. We need to know that as those who are capable of, of performing evil, right? That should, that should strike fear into us that we don't want to perform evil. It also should remind us as those who might be the, suffering at the hands of someone doing evil, it should remind us that will be dealt with. You need to be assured and confident that it will be dealt with and it will be dealt with all evil for all history. will be dealt with in one of two ways. It will find its sacrifice and its offering at the, at the cross of Jesus Christ. For those who come in repentance and say, I repent of my evil and I surrender, the wrath of God towards that evil will be poured out or has been poured out upon the Son of God. And that evil will be dealt with. And when that evil was performed against us, and then it, find, it, it finds itself justified at the cross of Jesus, should that be enough for us as the one who has suffered under that evil? Should it be enough? The sacrifice of Jesus is not just enough for your evil to be paid for. It's enough for the evil done against you to be paid for. And if it's not dealt with at the cross of Jesus, everyone who perpetrates evil will find judgment before the throne of God and will pay the penalty for that evil. And I would urge you, friends, as we urge every time we talk about this, I would urge you, come to the cross of Jesus. Don't pay for your own evil. The offering has been made for you. And friends who have suffered evil at the hands of others, you don't take revenge. You don't take revenge because you trust that God will deliver you in his time and in his way and you trust that God will deal with evil. The cross cries out that evil has been dealt with and will be dealt with for all eternity. The next thing we see that's a why for us in the book of Proverbs, why should I love my enemy? Is that I bless my enemy, remember the highest bar, bless them, right? I bless my enemy because it may win them to Christ. I bless my enemy because it may win them to Christ. Proverbs chapter 25, the same same verse we looked at in verse 22. 
In verse 21, he says, if your enemy's hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And then in verse 22, he says, for you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Now, that's kind of a, that burning coals idea is often misapplied or misunderstood because when we hear that, recognize that the parallel in the text is that it's the, it's the feeding of the hungry enemy, it's the drinking, it's the giving drink to the thirsty enemy that is equivalent to the burning coals in the next verse. So burning coals upon their head is not, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do something to them to make them feel really bad. I'm gonna do something bad to them. The burning coals that are heaped upon them are heaped upon them by the feeding of them, by the good work the blessing that is done to them. And the idea is this. Enemies are ready for you to come back at them to fight them. But what they're not ready for is for you to love them. And love has a way of slipping past the defenses of an enemy. And because love, not hate, slips past the defenses of the enemy, it may cause them to recognize the shamefulness of their behavior the shamefulness of their evil, and it may draw them to repentance. That's what the text means when it says, you will heap burning coals upon their head. You will cause them to feel a burning shame for their evil when you love them in return for the evil done against you. And when you do that, it may win them to Christ. Romans 12, verse 20, says it this way. It quotes this text, feed them if they're hungry, Give them drink if they're thirsty. It quotes that, and then it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, exactly what we just said. Evil is ready to deal with evil in return, but evil is not ready to deal with good given in return for the evil that has been done. And it might draw them. Now, friends, let me just acknowledge that what this assumes is that seeing people come to God in Christ Jesus, seeing people reconciled to God through Jesus is a motivator for you. It assumes that. Like this motivation has no, is no help to you if you don't have some evangelistic fervor in your life. If you don't want to see people, if you don't want to see Christ glorified by redeeming people through his blood, if you don't want to see that and you're not actively participating in that happening, then this motivation isn't gonna help you. Because the only way to say, oh, Not only will I not seek revenge, but I'll actually try and bless my enemy. The only way to actually try and do that act of love, to bless the enemy, is to have as a motivation in your heart that you want to see people reconciled to God in Christ. And when you want that, when you desire that, then it becomes fuel. Look, the glory of Christ is the primary motive for evangelizing, for telling people about Jesus. That's the primary motive because you want Christ's glory and it glorifies him when he saves someone, yes? Yes? Yeah, it glorifies him when he saves someone. But guess what a little side benefit is to you and I? When we have evangelistic fervor in our lives and we want to see people come to Christ, it equips us to deal with evil that's done against us. Do you see that? It means that when evil is performed against us, when that motivation is present in our life, we are now equipped because we have the motivation we need to remember, oh, I love my enemy in this moment because what I want is for them to come to Christ. The third motivation, the third why that Proverbs gives us is found in the same verse and it's at the very end there. Look at it again. It says, you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will what? Reward you. This is a really simple one. The scriptures are telling us when you choose to love your enemy, then the Lord will reward you for that. And can I just tell you as your pastor, I want you to have that reward. 
I can't promise you that reward will be in this life. It could be. God might choose to reward you in this life for loving your enemy. There may be a blessing he pours out upon you, a way that he honors you for honoring him by obeying his command to love your enemy. That may happen. It may be that you don't receive any reward until after you die and you're in the presence of the Lord. But one way or another, you will receive a reward for choosing to obey this command to love your enemy. And I'm just jealous for you to get that reward. I don't wanna see you choose to return evil for evil because I want you to get a reward from God for choosing to obey and love your enemy. I want his favor to be poured out upon you because you exemplify such trust in him in the way you treat your enemies. I want that for you. I want it for myself too. So I pray that we would have it. So that's the third motivation that we find. Now, we come to just the conclusion. Where do I find the ability to do this? How? <laughs> you know, so we, we said, how am I supposed to treat my enemy? What does that look like? We said, who's my enemy? And then we said, well, what's the motivation? But where does the power come from? Look with me at Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 10, says this. I'm flipping with you here. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The power to love your enemy in all these ways Proverbs just told us, it comes from understanding that you were God's enemy and that he loved you and saved you in the most costly way possible. Not because you washed yourself up a little bit and got yourself out of the status of being his enemy and kind of became indifferent towards him somehow, or maybe even just were kind of in this morally neutral spot towards God, and then once you were there, once you worked yourself there, then God sent Jesus to die for you. Is that what the scriptures teach us? No. While we were, what? Enemies. Enemies. Now look, there's a lot of popular theology out there right now that wants to try and teach you that you are not and never have been an enemy of God. And that just does not square with the teaching of Scripture. And let me tell you that when you buy into that theology, what it does is it strips you of the ability to love your enemy because you don't believe you were ever an enemy who needed to be loved. But indeed you were, and so was I. But while we were enemies, God reconciled us to himself in the most costly way possible. He didn't wait for you or I to take a step towards him. We were antagonistic, seeking his harm, in, steeped in evil, and God sent Jesus. Now, does that not cause you to be stirred? How can I not love my enemy when the king on high loved me when I was his enemy? How can I fail to feed my enemy when he's hungry, give him drink when he's thirsty, pray for him while he persecutes me? How can I fail to do these things? And my Father in heaven has done it for me. So 